I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. Steve was telling me that you just started the book of Acts. Is that correct? Am I in the right class? We started the book of Acts? Okay. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 and 7 today, and he's going to pick up in chapter 11 next week. And so to begin this, I wanted to ask the fundamental question that's at the root of the book of Acts, and that is, how in the world did this faith in Jesus Christ, in which 12 people believed and one betrayed and one denied, go from a little band of misfits to 50% of the Roman Empire in 300 years? How did a message about a carpenter from Nazareth who rose from the dead affect the entire world? And the better question for us as we read the book now is, why are we here? How are we here studying the Bible, praising Jesus, having a relationship with him after 2,000 years of Jesus not being on the earth? That's the question that the book of Acts is trying to answer. It is, how did this all work when Jesus left and only the disciples were there to, to finish the job? And sure enough, the proof is in all of us. The proof is that we are here. We do know Jesus. The message has been transmitted over generation to generation to generation. And the book of Acts tells us a little bit about why and how that happens. So I want to start out, I want to prime the pump a little bit by thinking of some experiences that we have undoubtedly all have. And that is, when was the last time that you got a job or responsibility or were put in a situation that you felt totally inadequate for? When was the last time that you were given a responsibility where you thought, I am the most unqualified person for this, but somehow this responsibility has fallen to me? So I, I, I've been a little sick. My voice is not great this morning. So I need you guys to get your jaws warmed up a little bit. If you only hear my voice, it's going to be a major loss this morning. So at your tables, I want maybe one, two stories. Share a little bit about a time that you were unqualified, un, uh, you were not experienced, you didn't want the job, but you were given a job and you had to do it. Share an experience where that happened over the course of the next four or five minutes, and then we'll bring it back in and look at the book of Acts. All right, I want to hear one or two of these stories. So if you'd like to share, if you had a great one at your table, I want to hear one or two of these stories. When was the time that you were unqualified for a job that you got? Anybody want to share? I'm not. Good to know. Good to know. Who else has a story? Anybody want to share one? Yeah. Uh huh. Or even better yet, a guy at a church one time, and he went all the way down south to another country. Uh huh. Had walked two hours up to meet these people. Uh huh. Walked one hour down to the mountain to hear the word of God. Yeah. Well, I asked the guy to take him a token, a token, you know, like a made of Bible or something. Yeah. Hey, that's actually a really good point. We're going to talk about that same phenomenon 
in the book of Acts. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really good point. Anybody else? Well, I want to share one with you guys. I thought about just coming and reading my resume because I've never been qualified for a job that I've gotten, I don't think. But my first job, I certainly wasn't qualified for. When I turned 16, got a car, my parents said, you better get a job. And so I started working at Subway as a sandwich artist, right? Um, so I got my, I've got my shirt, says sandwich artist on it. Um, my art aptitude is really low, but I could make a sandwich. And I'm working with this guy. They put me on the night shift, which is really like an evening shift. Work from 6 to 11, close at 11, you're out of there by midnight. And I start working this shift with this other guy named Jason, who is the night manager. So Jason trains me up, and we had a great time talking about everything. I was 16, so I thought the fact that this guy knew everything about X-Men was like the coolest thing in the history of the world. So we, we were a really, really good team. I did all the cleaning, and he did all of the money counting. He did all the stocking, all that kind of stuff. And we got that place looking great every night for opening the next day. Well, when I had been working there for about four or five weeks, the day manager showed up one night. And this was, this, I had seen this guy once. When I got hired, I met with the day manager. After that, I never saw him again. And so it was really weird that this guy would come into the night shift. And so he comes in and he sits me down. And I'm looking around, I'm like, what happened? I'm like, where is Jason? And he's like, yeah, well, we got some bad news. He's like, we've discovered something that's been going on. And I wanted to talk to you about it. It seems like Jason has been taking money from the cash register, and we had to let him go. So my heart was broken a little bit because I love this guy. And then he said to me, do you know anything about that? <laughs> I said, he doesn't even let me behind the counter by the cash register. Like, all I do is clean bathrooms and mop the floor. Like, I have, I have nothing. He's like, are you sure that you know nothing about that? I said, I don't know. I don't even know where you put the cash. I, don't, I have no idea about anything. I'm scared to death. He goes, okay, well... I think you're honest. You're the new night manager. <laughs> and, I, and afterwards, I was thinking, I was like, what was the plan there? Either I knew about it and I got fired, or I didn't know about it, and on my word, he was making me the new night manager. So here I am. I'm a 16-year-old night manager at Subway. My pay increased like 40 cents an hour. It was awesome. Um, I got a new shirt. Oh, man. It was really cool. Uh, that was, that was really how I haven't been a manager since actually, but it was a great job. But I felt when my first person came in to train to do the night shift, I felt so inadequate. I had been working there for five weeks. I didn't know what it took to do any of the stuff at a subway. And so I followed the list and I trained them and they gave me some help. And sure enough, the subway is still open on May Avenue to this day, <laughs> new management and everything, but it's still open. And in the story of Acts, this phenomenon takes place twice in chapter 6. First, Jesus gives authority to preach the gospel to the disciples. That happens in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, this is the theme of Acts. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But, and this is the theme, this is the theme verse of Acts, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
you will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and when that happens, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Then, in verse 9, and when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus brings them all together. He says, look, here's the plan. You're the plan. I'm leaving. You need to take the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Got it? Bam, he's gone. Can you imagine the scene? So the disciples, um, they followed Jesus for three years, and they didn't do that well. So if you read the gospels, you realize that the disciples didn't get it very often. Like they said the wrong things at the wrong times, in the wrong ways, they were in the wrong place. And when Jesus was crucified, what did they do? They scattered. Peter denies Jesus. Judas betrayed him. We're only 10 out of 12 that didn't do something catastrophic at the crucifixion. But then Jesus rises from the dead. He calls his disciples together. He says, you know what? I'm leaving, but you're the plan. You are the plan, and there's no plan B. You must take the gospel to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what happened in the book of Acts. Can you imagine the inadequacy that they felt? So they've walked with Jesus, and if you've even glanced at the gospels, you realize Jesus did some things that most people don't do. Like, he was kind of a unique guy. And they're like, you want us to do the things that Jesus did on the earth while Jesus is gone? And they sit there and they realize, if somebody doesn't do this, nobody's going to do it. We are the plan. So as you guys have studied over the first few chapters of Acts, they start to do that. And they start to preach. And Peter preaches these awesome sermons at Pentecost. And thousands of people believe. And and sure enough, as the people start to gather, they start to lead. And you start to see these disciples. And and then in chapter 6 we see the second generation of apostles. And here's why I think this is really important. Because for us, it's easy to look at the Bible and look at the disciples and say, I'll never be like them. Like, we, we don't really treat the disciples like people. We treat the disciples like demigods. So we say, well, I mean, that's Peter. You know, Peter did this, but that's Peter. I, I'm never going to be like Peter. Or, well, you've got John and James, and they saw Jesus transfigured, but I haven't ever seen Jesus transfigured. So so God couldn't possibly expect as much of me as he did of them. And and while I think that's not the way that we should think about it, Acts 6 says, no, 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 no. I'm going to show you, as Luke's writing, I I think he's saying, look, I'm going to show you how some ordinary guys with ordinary talents and abilities They don't have any special miraculous powers at this point. They don't have any great resumes. But instead, he's going to give us some characteristics. He's say, these guys took up the mission of the church, and so can you. That's the point of Acts chapter 6. So the other day, I was reading some statistics, and Barna did a poll last year among Christians. So this is just among Christians. They polled these Christians, and one of the questions they asked, the one that told me the most, I think, was, they asked Christians what their faith had to do with their everyday life. And 40%, 40% of Christians didn't know what their faith had to do with their everyday life. 40% of Christians think that your faith is something that you do on Sundays, 
and your life is something you do on the other days of the week, and that those two don't really mix. And maybe there's a little bit of forgiveness that happens. Maybe your conscience is cleared up. Maybe you have some new friends. Like maybe there's some fringe benefits, but at its root, 40% of Christians don't know what their faith has to do with their everyday life. One of the reasons it's really important to study these kinds of characters is because if we are the plan, then our faith has to do with every square inch of our life. If we really are the plan, like if God has said, look, I'm going to send the gospel out to all the people on the earth and you're going to do it, then our faith has to touch every corner of our life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul writes this to summarize the responsibility of believers. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Notice he doesn't say that we are ambassadors for Christ so that God is making his appeal through Christ or through pastors or through missionaries. He says we are ambassadors for Christ because God is making his appeal through us to the world. So if we're going to do that, we need examples. We need to see people who've really done this, who've really lived this out. And if you'll look with me in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see some people that do it. Look on your sheet or in your Bible. I'm going to start. I'm going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples, and it said... It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to do this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And they, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we see a transition take place between the apostles and these guys who, who we, we start to call servants or deacons because the word table waiters, which is what they're doing, is where we get the word deacon. And so this is not necessarily a church office. It's a responsibility. And if you think about the responsibility, this was not a glamorous responsibility, right? This is not they're finding new guys to preach. They're not paying them a great salary. What they're doing is they're saying, we need somebody to administrate food distribution to widows. Now, this is an important responsibility, but it's not a glamorous responsibility. It's important for the community of Christians, for the Hellenists, for the Hebrews to operate together, that somebody get in and really get to take care of these widows. And so who do they pick? Men of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom and good repute. These are everyday, ordinary guys trying to follow Jesus with their life. Look at verse 7. One of the things that's interesting, if you read um, about business or if you just open up a popular magazine, you realize that one of the most crucial times for a business, if if it gets started up, is what? What's the time when most businesses fail if they make it past startup? When the founder leaves, 
When the founder leaves, it's one of the most important, crucial times for a company. And part of it is because the vision may not transfer, or the power of personality may not transfer, or the style of running it. And you want to make a great decision. And so what these disciples do is they say, hey, if we're not going to be the hands and the feet anymore, we've got to pick people that can do it. And in verse 7, it says that they made a good choice. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So it was a seamless transition. And for us, we look at these guys and we say, we want to do that because somebody shared the gospel with us. Somebody shared the gospel with us. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was at an event. Maybe it was on TV. Maybe it was a tract. Maybe it was reading your Bible. But somebody came and took the gospel to you. And after that, somebody poured their life into you. Maybe it was a group of people. Maybe it was one person in particular. Maybe it was a church full of people. But somebody came before you, and they nurtured you in the faith. And they helped you to grow up in the faith. And hoping that someday, when they were gone, you would be the people who were doing that for somebody else. And in Acts chapter 6, we see that this works in a seamless transition. So as we look at these examples, we say, what can we do? What can we do to fulfill the role that God has called us to play in the proliferation of the gospel and the continuation of the church? And so to do that, I want us to take a case study. And that's what Luke does. So Luke introduces, in in chapter 6, he introduces all these people, these these six guys. Then in chapter 7 and chapter 8, he's going to give us two case studies of what happens with these guys. The first one is the story of Stephen that we're going to cover today. And the second one is the story of Philip, who you can read this week. So Luke says, look, I'm not lying. These guys, they really did do the things that the disciples did. They really did carry on the message, and I'll prove it to you with the story of Stephen. So in the end of chapter 6, it tells us that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, that's new. Some Some of who belonged to the synagogue and the Cyrians and the Alexandrians. And so he ends up getting in trouble with these people which is exactly what the apostles did, right? So he, um, the people get mad at him, and then he gets brought before a tribunal, and he has some words to speak for these people. So what I want us to do for a second, because I think this is really important, although it's really long, I want us to read this speech. So I want you to read from chapter 7, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 53. Because I think this speech is that important. But I want you to do it at your tables. Take turns, do every ten verses if you want, go around the table, but have somebody read this speech that Stephen makes to the Jews, and then we're going to finish up after that. So at your tables, read this speech together. I'll give you a few minutes, and then we'll jump back in. Okay, everybody's starting to finish up. Getting close. Okay, there's two reasons why I wanted us to read this. First of all, this is one of the great speeches, one of the great sermons of the Bible. It's one of the longest speeches in the Bible. It's one of the most important in the Bible. And when you start to read it, you realize this guy has a lot of boldness for just being called in off the bench a few weeks ago. I mean, somebody needed to give Stephen a copy of How to Win Friends and Influence People. Because this is, not, this is not the way that you speak to religious authorities unless, unless you truly believe that God has called you to a specific purpose and a specific mission 
to proclaim the truth of the gospel to everybody. If you believe that, this is the kind of speech that you give. And the second reason I want us to, wanted us to read this out loud in its entirety is because there's a theme in this sermon that is really important for the book of Acts. And the theme of this sermon is continuity. God raised up this person, and he did this. And then God raised up this person, and they did this. And then God used this person to do this. And you look at this, and it's, it's like Old Testament 101. I mean, this is a really nice recap of what God did in the Old Testament. But you look through and you see... These people that God used, he's talking about Abraham and Moses and those kinds of people, they were murderers. They were idolaters. They were sinners. They were not perfect. They weren't great leaders, but God raised them up and he did extraordinary things so that from thousands of years ago until then, God had a continuous plan and a continuous message. And Stephen must have realized, like I would have loved to do like sermon prep with Stephen. I wonder what that was like, like, I would have loved to, to see him realize the thing to click to say, it's not just Moses, it's not just Abraham, it's me. Like, I am the next link in this chain. And what Luke is telling us through this is, you are the next link in the chain. You're not an observer who's looking and seeing, oh, God has this plan for all of time, and he's been doing this amazing things, and, and the chain passes you by. No, actually, you look behind you, and you look ahead of you, and you realize, I'm a part of what God has been doing in the history of the ages. So Stephen puts all this together, and the people are upset, um, understandably upset, and so they decide they're going to kill Stephen. And the question that we get in, this, in the life of Stephen, the reason why this is a great case study is because Stephen comes in unqualified for his position and he embodies it and he capitalizes on it and he does an, a fantastic job because as he starts to walk in the role that God has called him to, he starts to grow in maturity. He starts to grow in maturity. And we all want to know what it means to be a mature Christian, right? We want to know what does it look like to make progress in the faith? Like we're shy from numbers. Like we don't want to say like, well, I had my quiet time four times last week, but now I'm having it five times. So I'm more mature now. Or my prayers started out at three minutes, but now they're at six minutes. And so I'm a much better Christian. Like what does it mean to quantify growth in the Christian life? And, and the example that we get is you start to do the things that Jesus would do in your spot. One of the definitions of Christian maturity is that you start to do the things that Jesus would do in your spot, which seems impossible. It seems totally unfathomable that I would do the things that Jesus would do or that we as a group would look like Jesus to the world. It seems unbelievable that that would happen, but it does. And as we walk with the Lord, we start to do the things that Jesus would do in our spot. And so I want to I point out this example at the end of Stephen's story. Look at verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Listen to this. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he said this, 
and he fell asleep. Now there's somebody else in Scripture who forgave the people that were killing him. Jesus. And when you read the story of Jesus, it's easy to write off because it's Jesus. You know, like, of course Jesus would do that, but nobody else would do that. Nobody else could have the maturity and the trust and the faith to forgive the people that were killing them. And I bet if you ask Stephen a year before this happened, would you, do you think you could do that? He'd say, not a chance. Not a chance. I can't believe Jesus did that. But as Stephen started to walk through his life following Jesus, he began to do the things that Jesus did because the Holy Spirit was working in him. And he was growing and he was walking in fellowship with other believers and following Jesus. And sure enough, the things that Jesus did started to be a part of Stephen's life. And so I wonder when I read this story, what was Jesus doing at this point? So it says, he looks up, he sees Jesus, he's standing at the right hand of the Father. What, what was Jesus doing? And I don't, I don't presume to know exactly what the mind of the Lord is, but I think there's one thing that he was doing that's evident in this story. I think that at this point, Jesus was cheering for Stephen. I think at this point, Jesus was interceding and he was cheering for Stephen. So that Stephen comes out of the city and they're pelting him with rocks. And Jesus, whose heart is broken, looks down on him. And instead of like calling lightning out of the sky and striking down these people, he says, forgive Forgive, forgive, forgive. And Stephen looks up and he sees him there. He's full of the Holy Spirit and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I think Jesus was cheering for Stephen to do the things that he would have done. And I think that God is doing the same thing for you. I think that Jesus is doing the same thing for you. That as you walk with him and as you grow in your knowledge of him and as you trust him with your whole life, I think that Jesus is cheering for you to do the things that he would do on the earth. And to wrap up this story in Acts, it turns out that as we walk and do the things that Jesus does, the kingdom of God spreads through the whole earth. And so that from 10 followers of Jesus to billions of followers of Jesus, we have been the plan. People like us, not superstar religious celebrities, not people that had miraculous powers, not people that we can write off. Ordinary, everyday, unqualified people like us have carried out the plan of God through all of history, and it's worked. So the question for us is, what are you going to do to be the next link in the chain? How are you going to do the things that Jesus would do in your position? How are you going to trust Jesus so that the message, the responsibility, the, the opportunity to be a part of God's plan infiltrates every area of your life? How are you going to take up the mantle of Stephen and Paul and Moses and Abraham and fulfill God's will in your life? I think that's the challenge, and Jesus is cheering you to get there. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would do mighty things through ordinary people like us. God, we want to be faithful. We want to follow through. We want to be a part of something. And God, you have given us the greatest opportunity. You've said that we can come in and take part in the plan for all of the ages, the salvation of your people. And Lord, we thank you for that. We do not take that lightly. God, give us 
the power of your spirit to live in a way that Jesus would live. Lord, we, we can't do that on our own. We are so unqualified and inadequate for that, but you speak the truth to us that we can be like your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to have the boldness and the courage and the self-discipline that it takes to deny ourselves and follow you. Father, I thank you for this class and this group. I thank you for Steve and Rhonda and those that serve in this class. I pray that you would bless them. And I pray that as a group, we would be people who are carrying out your mission in every part of our life. Father, we praise you with all the glory and all the honor. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.